Okay. We have a few more long-range considerations of the tribulation before we open the door onto the period itself. Not least a more detailed examination of the essential Daniel 9 passage, which in itself takes a long view. But first, a correction. I cannot be trusted when I go off script, which I did last week. Last week I said something that was wrong. Early Monday morning I awoke with a start. I said something wrong. That wasn't right. Last week I cited the rape and pillage of Jerusalem in Zechariah 14 as occurring when Satan is released from his thousand years in the abyss. Wrong. That's wrong. Zechariah 14 describes what is happening in Jerusalem just before Christ returns. Not a thousand years later. Pardon me. That will occur at the end of the tribulation. Now, let's, let's read our passage, Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. We need a mic over here for Dennis. <clears throat> and then my stalwart microphone guys can take a break. It's the only one. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be, excuse me, until, yeah. until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of the abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that has decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. One that is decreed. One who is decreed. One that is. You have who? New American Standard. Yeah. One one who is decreed? One that is decreed. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, a lot, that's a lot of information in three verses. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> So let's dig into verse 24. Earlier, as I began a close examination, earlier in the week, 
of verse 24. I made a mistake that we should all guard against in this study of, our, of this period. I began interpreting the six achievements either accomplished within or brought about as a result of the 70 weeks from a, a general, even Christian viewpoint. And I was running into trouble doing that. But then I finally reminded myself, I've repeatedly said that the 70 weeks, and especially the 70th week, are all about Israel, not Christians. Gabriel in the text tells Daniel that the 70 weeks with their achievements are all, quote, about your people and your holy city. Daniel was a Jew. His people is Israel. And his holy city was Jerusalem. The overall purpose of what follows is to bring about national and spiritual redemption for Israel. The first three, we might say, goals or accomplishments in verse 24 <clears throat> relate to the removal of sin and the second three to the restoration of righteousness. So those first three are finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity. The first two are related, but not synonymous. The first, finish the transgression, pesha, implies a revolt against authority. While the second, end of sin, hataot, speaks more of missing the mark. What would, more like how we would think of sin, missing the mark. Hence requiring some sort of expiation or sacrifice. Neither of the first two would be possible without the sacrifice the Messiah made on the cross for the once-for-all atonement for our sins. Now the second three relate to the restoration of righteousness. Bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place. Because of the work done by the Messiah, the ground will be laid for an eternal time of righteousness. And there will no longer be need for visions and prophecy. For they'll all find their fulfillment in the Christ. Israel's long-awaited Messiah, now acknowledged by Israel as a nation, as a people. We're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about the nation Israel. They will acknowledge Messiah on His throne. They will acknowledge Christ Jesus as their Messiah. Finally, the most holy place in the Millennial Temple will be consecrated. My reading of verse 24 is that these six goals or purposes of the 70 weeks do not see their fulfillment necessarily within those seven weeks. Some do, some may not. but that the 70 weeks and especially the 70th week represent the required trial by fire, as it were, for these to be accomplished in Israel as a people. The time of tribulation will mean both for Israel. Both trial by fire 
and ultimate redemption. Israel as a nation, as God's chosen people, will at last embrace Christ Jesus as their Messiah. Turn please to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. Here as well as in other prophecies, Yahweh makes clear that He will indeed keep His promise to restore Israel. But it will come at a price. They must pass through the refining furnace to get there. First three verses in Jeremiah 30. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book, for behold, days are coming. That's an eschatological reference. That's an end time reference. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. That's all good news. Great. A Jew reading that, whoa, that's good news. But Israel must first receive its due punishment. Go down to verse 11. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations which I have scattered where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly, and will by no means leave you unpunished. Now back up to verse five. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread. And there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. Again, end time. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or Israel's distress but he will be saved from it. Now, go to Jeremiah 31, the next chapter. Verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now look at verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, implied in verse 33 of Jeremiah's prophecy is what the prophet Ezekiel states explicitly. 
Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Because that's our covenant right there. In the last days, God will make a new covenant with Israel. That new covenant is the one in Christ Jesus. In which the believer has Christ, has the Spirit in him, has a new heart. Christ Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, the Jewish and Gentile Messiah, bookends it all. In Him, sin is defeated and ultimately vanquished. And in Him, righteousness will reign not just for the Jews, but for all who acknowledge Him as Lord. So this time, verse 24, begins to open the door And it describes a time when Israel will be on its way as a nation, as a people, to redemption, to final fulfillment of God's promises to them. But they have to pass through the fire first. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And last week we just explained seven weeks, seven sevens, 49 years, 62 weeks, more. (laughs) 483 years. I have to look that one up. Gabriel here announces to Daniel, Oh, I'm sorry, the rest of the verse. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in in times of distress. Gabriel here announces to Daniel that the beginning point, called the terminus aquo, of the 70 weeks will be a decree issued to, quote, restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Those words are not repeated, you know, sometimes in Scripture, You'll say a word and then beef it up with another synonymous word. These are two different words. Scholars, interpreters, commentators, and seemingly everyone else under the sun have been, have been and are still debating this. The logical options for the terminus a quo are typically reduced to three or four possibilities. I've concluded that the only one that properly fits the definition and timeline, especially of the life of Christ on earth, is the decree issued in 457 B.C. by Artaxerxes to Ezra. Now, most charts you see, especially the older ones, ones that I've referenced in this, will say Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah. Well, stay with me and I'll explain why I don't agree with that. That is really the only other decree remotely possible 
the one to Nehemiah, which is a very common interpretation. But that timeline does not harmonize with the accepted dates for the life of Jesus on earth. Everyone who, everyone except me, of course, who purports, who subscribes to a different theory, a different interpretation, so many of them, they've got to do real fancy footwork. They've got to change calendars and they have to come up with all kinds of explanations. They have to really wrangle it. This one, this one, does very little of that at all. It just goes by the dates. The common criticism of the Ezra decree, why most of them go with the one to Nehemiah, is that it speaks only of the temple, not the city being rebuilt. Ezra was sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah was sent to rebuild the wall of the city. So, the common criticism is that Ezra wasn't, doesn't even mention the city, it's just the temple. But it does, if one looks deeper. Please turn to Ezra chapter 7. Where's, where's Ezra? Before Nehemiah. Ezra the priest and scribe was in exile in Babylon. And, quote, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him, end quote, set out for Jerusalem with others, carrying with him a copy of the decree given him by the Persian king Artaxerxes. Persia had Israel at that time, had that whole area. It was their kingdom. Artaxerxes was the king. Artaxerxes did not just give permission. He sent Ezra and his companions back to Jerusalem, laden down with silver and gold, money from a free will offering from Babylonians, the utensils that had been stolen from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, and essentially carte blanche to do whatever he wanted, no matter the cost, including making, making everyone involved exempt from taxes and tolls. Talk about the hand of God. Now, in, verse, in chapter 7, note verses 25 and 26. You, Ezra, this is part of the decree from Artaxerxes. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, that is, Persian king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Now, that goes well beyond just the rebuilding of the temple. Now, listen to what Ezra includes in his prayer and confession in Ezra 9, 
verses 8 to 9. But now, this is Ezra. I've lifted this out of a long prayer confessing the sins of Israel to God. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Now note, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. It seems clear that Ezra assumed his mandate from the king to be well beyond simply the repair and rebuilding of the temple, but to include the restoration of the city itself. More than that, we can see that Ezra and Nehemiah, who would come later to address the situation with the wall, was there to reestablish a Jewish society and culture. He wasn't there just tightly focused on the temple. He is told explicitly to, quote, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even those who know the laws of your God. End quote. This was not just reestablishing the temple system, but a civic system, which was begun by Ezra and Nehemiah, but only completed 49 years later, thus comprising the first seven weeks. Now, the timeline, the, the sequence of events... Ezra gets permission, this decree from Artaxerxes, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and restore the, the, the city somewhat as much as he can. But he has opposition from without. Even though he holds in his hand a decree that says, if you need any help, if you need any more funds, you just get it from all the people around you that are in our kingdom. Even so, there's opposition. In fact, there was even a 10-year period where there was just nothing done on the temple. Well, word of that opposition and that not getting the work done on the temple, word of that got back to Nehemiah. First part of, his, of the book of Nehemiah. His brother comes back and tells him about all the problems they're having getting the work done. It breaks his heart. And he goes to Artaxerxes, same king. And he says, let me go back and rebuild the temple so that we can protect the area, protect the city, protect the temple from this opposition. Artaxerxes gives him a decree, gives him permission to go back, which he does. And in 50-some days, the, tent, the wall is completed. Even with opposition, there was a period where Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king, we, we may think, well, that's a wine taster, big deal. And he was pretty, that's a pretty important role. He's always with the king. And he was the cupbearer to the king, going back to Jerusalem. Now he's the governor. And he's calling the shots. And they rebuild the wall. But there was a period where the, the 
Opposition was so strong that everyone working on the wall would do it in shifts, and those who you'd carry a trowel in one hand and your sword in the other. So they finally got the wall done. When did they get the wall the, the wall done? Fifty some days. When did they get the city restored so the people could live there? Around 408 BC which is 749 years after the decree to, Xerxes, or, uh, to Ezra. Why is this important? Why all this is important? Because the Hebrew word translated restore in verse 25, literally, cause to return. Here means to return Jerusalem, to restore Jerusalem to its former condition as a place of Yahweh worship, as a place for Israel to live in Judah. Here's how Albert Barnes speaks of it. It was evidently the purpose to cause it to return, as it were, to its former splendor, to reinstate it in its former condition as a holy city, the city where the worship of God would be celebrated. And it is this purpose which is referred to here. It's Albert Barnes. So it was the decree to Ezra that got all this started. Ezra ran into problems. He needed somebody. They couldn't rebuild the temple without a wall around the city because of all the opposition. Nehemiah had to come back, take care of that. Then they could rebuild the city once it had protection. And the verse continues, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Taking 457 B.C. as our starting point, followed by 408 B.C. to mark the completion of the restoration of Jerusalem, another seven weeks, 49 years, we next look to a point 450. 34 years later to mark the end of the 69 or 62 weeks. We find that to be A.D. 27 when Jesus was baptized and began His ministry. Now here again, commentators, scholars, they all have their own idea on this. They say, oh no, I think... David Guzik, for example, whom I've cited a number of times, who always makes me think of Wendell, because he, he turned me on to Dave Guzik. So it's a happy memory. But Guzik goes another direction. He says, no, no, it was, it was Palm Sunday. It was when he was presented to Jerusalem with the palm branches, then he was introduced. Okay, I disagree with you, David Guzik, but there's all kinds of theories on this. The NASB and ESV, and I believe New King James as well, Prince, is not the most helpful for the Hebrew word Nagid, which is better translated here, ruler. It, there's, there's nothing... That's not an error to call it a prince. I just don't think it applies here. It can, re, can be leader, ruler, king, prince, etc. The NIV has the anointed one, comma, 
the ruler. That's, the, that's another one. I'm building up my account here because one day I'm going to really land on you, Rene. And because of the Hebrew word order, points specifically to their use as a proper pronoun for a distinctive personage. In other words, Messiah, capital M, the ruler, capital R. So what is it about that moment of his baptism that would designate at the end of the 69 weeks, or 62? Well, it was the moment of his anointing. He's the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, anointed one, which can also be a small m. There are other leaders who were messiahs, but this is the Messiah, capital M. If we consider the various milestones of Jesus' time on earth, his incarnation, his, the inauguration of his public ministry, his transfiguration, and I would put the transfiguration very, very much the same category as his baptism. It's when God said, this is my son, listen to him. Same thing. His trial and death, resurrection and ascension. Out of all these, it is the moment immediately after Jesus' baptism by John when His heavenly Father declared Him to be His Son that best fits, quote, until Messiah the ruler. Young's literal translation has unto Messiah the ruler. Coming of in the ESV during His life on earth. Quote, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 16-17 This is Jesus receiving the Father's blessing, being anointed for His upcoming ministry. In a a base human sense, it is getting your marching orders from your boss. Or better, being ordained by a church so you can preach the gospel. That was, this was Christ's ordination, so to speak. Having received public sanction from His heavenly Father, it was now time for Jesus to pass through His own furnace of testing and begin His ministry. The verse ends, It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Both of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah attest to the fact that Jerusalem in their time was encircled by those who were doing everything possible to bring its restoration and rebuilding to a grinding point, even to the point of going against the dictates of the Persian king. Thus, the 69 weeks, 483 years, comes to a close at the baptism and public authorization of Jesus by God the Father in circa A.D. 27, 
which works well with the generally accepted year of his crucifixion, circa A.D. 30. Circa means about. And in our next session, we'll finish the examination of Daniel 9. Be sure to bring this same chart with you then. Any questions or thoughts? Yes, Dan. This past week we were going through Hebrews 8, which directly quotes Jeremiah 31, the, what you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. In verse 31, it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then 33, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After, any idea why he has references both of them in 31 and 33? It's just Israel. And we got way too bogged down on it. And we don't, any idea why? I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. What? <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> I'm sh Okay. We didn't either. That's Except one <laughs> is a reference that you've split apart. And a reference to Israel alone says, I'm going to put you back together again. That's a pretty good guess. Anything else? Greg, see how he's, he's trying to ignore you. <laughs> nice try, Ryan. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I'll have to take a look at your notes after this, but were you trying to say that the the similar passages in, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel referenced two different groups? Two different groups? No, it's all talking about Israel. Sometimes it refers to them as Judah and Israel. Sometimes just by Israel. The whole point of it is to put it back together again. And do you think that they also refer to Christians or just Israel? Israel. We are not the new Israel. There is no new Israel. That's a dispensational position. Christians are Christians. They're the church. Israel is Israel. Yeah, Dennis. Well, this <clears throat> not really a question, but when uh, Jesus was baptized and and there were several parts in the Gospels where God spoke, uh, but obviously it wasn't that Jesus then knew that he was the Messiah and everything. Oh, no. It was for the benefit of the people that they... You know, that's why, you know, he, he said that, didn't he, once? It's not for my benefit, it's for your benefit that God, he knew, obviously, that he was the Messiah, obviously, but it's just a good thing to remember. And that's why Guzik takes his position, that that was a public, public. pronouncement of, he, you know, that right. procession saying, here's the Messiah. So the people had no excuse, because God proclaimed it several times that yeah. he was the one. Listen to him later on, it said that, but even when he was baptized, seems like there were several occasions uh, where, I mean, there was no mistake, but the people still did not believe a lot of them. 
Isn't that something that... And, and that's what the tribulation, that's yeah. what's going to happen during the tribulation, that Israel will finally say, yes, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And we turned against Him, but now we accept Him. Yeah. That's... Yes. Anything else? The next class is the next session is getting so long. I even brought this to say, well, maybe if no, there aren't any questions, I can get a head start. Nope, can't do that. So buckle up. And there's so much that I'm not including. This is a, what, what does the military call it? A, a target-rich environment. Our Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. We praise You for entrusting this information to us. You didn't have to tell us. Just do it. But You wanted us to know how You work, how You think. That You will not, for, that you will not live with sin. You must deal with it one way or another. And here You are dealing with it with Your chosen people you, long-suffering God, there will come a day when you will suffer it no more and you will deal with it. And there will be a price to be paid. But out of that furnace will come redemption. Israel will embrace your Son as Savior, Messiah. And we will rejoice over that. For they are our brothers, our sisters, 